Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we hear Skip Sundberg's final teaching session from 2009. Next week we return to our normal podcast schedule, releasing an episode each Tuesday morning. ...of uh, St. Patrick, to whom we should all be thankful for what he accomplished. I have one more Irish joke, and it's even more Irish than the one yesterday. Uh, Patty and Sean are uh, in the pub, drinking Guinness and uh, reminiscing about their days in parochial school. And Patty says, ah, Sean, Sister Catherine, she was the worst. If you did just the slightest thing wrong, she was there with the ruler, slapping you on the knuckles. Many a day I went home to my dear mother, God rest her soul, with the bloody hand and the head bowed. And Sean says, oh, Patty, that's nothing. The worst was Sister Ione. I remember the first day of class, I couldn't have been more than 10. And in she walks with two German shepherds on chain leeches. No, not the dogs. Two German shepherds. The exhortation. <laughs> the exhortation to communicants demonstrates the seriousness with which the Lutheran tradition at its beginning understood sincere faith as the validation of liturgical worship. This is in continuity with the discipline severity of the early church. It is also a mark of the sectarian tradition as it would later develop. The purpose of public worship, according to Luther, is to change people and make them Christians. This is clear from the beginning of Luther's career. In the 95 Theses, Luther's primary attack is on the laxity of Christian discipline in repentance. In the very first thesis, he asserts, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance means that the sinner has a change of heart and hates his sin. There is no place for attrition or routine custom. Repentance demands contrition from the heart in the deepest sense. Hatred uh, of oneself should involve one's whole life, according to the passage, he who hates his soul in this life preserves it for eternal life. And again, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Sacramental penance cannot, be, cannot begin to fulfill this demand. First, because it is temporal and cannot be done all the time, but also because it is external and thus can be a sham. Take that, opus operatum, that is receiving grace under the virtual condition of showing up. Insofar as it is legally instituted by popes and the church and is subject to a false theology, it can serve to lessen the demands that God actually makes on those who would be his followers thus placing believers under illusion as to their true condition. Thus, the bounty of indulgences that the church peddles and the need for true contrition are 
in opposition. A Christian who is truly contrite does not want to escape punishment, but seeks and loves to pay penalties. Thus, Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ their head through penalties, deaths, and hell, and thus be confident of entering into heaven rather than through many tribulations than through the, fourth, the false security of peace. Soren Kierkegaard, anybody? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, anybody? To the end of his life, uh, Luther argued vociferously against lax preaching in the church. He said, lax preachers preach much about the grace of God, yet they strengthen and comfort only those who remain in their sins, telling them not to fear and be terrified by sin since they're all removed by Christ. Priests and false pastors let the people go on in their public sins without any renewal or reformation of their lives. Thus it becomes quite evident that they truly fail to understand the faith and Christ and thereby abrogate both when they preach about it. Thereby abrogating both when they preach about it. He wrote that in 1539. And I can multiply these types of quotations ad infinitum and show them in context. He was a tough old bird, Martin Luther. Now, this is very sectarian in its character. But there's no doubt that Luther understood the church type. He's at the headwaters of that too in its Protestant form and is so um, by saying things like this. Public worship should be arranged for the sake of the unlearned layfolk, for all people, among whom are many who do not believe and are not yet Christians. Most of them stand around and gape, hoping to see something new, just as we were holding a service among the Turks or the heathen in a public square or out in a field. The gospel must be publicly preached to such people to move them to believe and become Christian. Why? Because sitting out there, you and me are four types of people, four types of people. The true believer, the schemer, the wicked, and the immature. That's you and me at all stages of our lives. True or not true? Now, baptism. Let's look at what he has to say about uh, baptism. For Luther, baptism is the beginning of the perilous journey of life. And when I say perilous journey, um, let's remember when he lived and thanks, thank, give thanks to God that we don't live there. Um, he lived at a time uh, which was still being beset by the Black Plague. In the middle of the 14th century, the Black Plague um, uh, wiped out between one-fourth and one-third of the entire population of Europe. They couldn't even bury the people. It also killed all the dogs and chickens and ducks and geese and cattle and horses. The whole of Europe smelled. And they started crawling back 
um, but still it would beset them from time to time. Um, uh, average uh, life, life expectancy was, um, was uh, well, let me put it this way. If you made it to age 10, you had a good chance to live a normal range of life, three score and 10. But one half of the population died by age 10, one half. Luther came from a family of eight. Only four made it to adulthood. So um, life was perilous in a very direct sense. And um, baptism is the beginning of this perilous journey. It makes the person a child of God, but also places him or her between God and the devil. So, for example, in the Holy and Blessed Sacrament of Baptism, Luther speaks in familiar terms of a blessed dying unto sin and a resurrection in the grace of God, so that the old man is there drowned and a new man comes forth. But he also says this, that baptism establishes a covenant between us and God to that effect that we will fight against sin and slay it, even to our dying breath, while he for his part will be merciful to us, deal graciously with us. And because we are not sinless in this life until purified by death, not judge us with severity. But he warns against a false security that says, if baptism is so gracious and great a thing that God will not count our sins against us, I will live and do my will. If you think that, this is an illusion. We cannot wickedly and wantedly sin and go on presuming uh, God's grace. Now, in his early baptismal liturgies of 1523 and 1526, Luther places the idea of baptism as a covenant in the context of the ancient tradition of spiritual warfare that we saw at work in the early church. The battle against Satan begins as soon as we enter the world. In baptism, we flee from the prince of darkness. Baptism is an exorcism. So among the elements of this baptismal liturgy, and I'm not going to go into this because I've done it before here, he says things like this, and just let this be typical. I adjure thee, thou unclean spirit, by the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that thou come out of and depart from this servant of God. For he commands thee, thou miserable one, he who walked upon the sea and stretched forth his hand to the sinking Peter. Now, um, what is most interesting to me is the instructions that he gives um, at the... Uh, at the end of his setting from 1523. Um, instructions to the people and to the minister. He says this, um, the minister is to intercede on behalf of the baptized as their journey of life begins. Spiritual warfare is a dangerous enterprise and many lose their way. Thus the minister prays that the baptized may be sundered from the number of the unbelieving. Preserve dry and secure in the holy ark of Christendom. Serve thy name at all times, fervent in spirit and joyful in hope, so that with all believers he may be made worthy to attain eternal life according to thy promise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In his instructions, Luther warns that it is no joke to take sides against the devil. 
Baptism means that the child will be burdened with a mighty and lifelong enemy. The child needs the heart and strong faith of fellow Christians along with their earnest intercession through prayer. Corporate faith demonstrated in intercessory prayer is the key to the sacrament. Corporate faith demonstrated in intercessory prayer is the key to the sacrament, not the liturgical trappings of a rite. Signing with the cross, anointing the breast and shoulders with oil, signing the crown and of the head with chrism, putting on the christening robe, placing a burning candle in the hand are not the sort of devices and practices from which the devil shrinks or flees. He sneers at greater things than these. Here's the place, he says, for real earnestness. He laments that for most people, baptism makes no difference. They lose their way. He says this is the fault of the church. I suspect that people turn out so badly after baptism because our concern for them has been so cold and careless. We, at their baptism, interceded for them without zeal. I thought zeal was a Baptist word. Real earnestness in corporate faith and zeal in intercessory prayer are both necessary to the effectiveness of the sacrament of baptism. That's in the liturgical instructions. Now, I remember at uh, Como Park, the discipline there was when we would baptize someone, uh, the date would be uh, written down, and then, uh, I don't know, help me out here, Gerilyn, I think it was at age five that a card would be sent out to the people at the address we had at the time of the baptism, um, on the anniversary, the fifth anniversary of the baptism, uh, congratulating them and also reminding them that Sunday school begins now. Got to do something here to keep the contact. Um, contact, uh, contact. Now, please follow this. <laughs> When baptism is not attended to in the church by prayer and faith, Satan rears his ugly head. Over time, his effect is destructive. Though Satan could not quench the power of baptism in little children, nevertheless he succeeds in quenching it in all adults, so that now there are scarcely any who call to mind their own baptism, and still fewer, fewer who glory in it. What's the glory of baptism? Baptism is and remains throughout a person's life the means for remitting sins and getting to heaven. There should be no confusion about the relation of baptism and penance. Baptism is the Lord of penance. And thus, Luther rejects Jerome. Remember uh, yesterday or two days ago, I quoted this uh, letter to Demetrius from Jerome in which he said, Let us know nothing of penitence, lest the thought of it lead us into sin. It is a plank for those who have had the misfortune to be shipwrecked. But an inviolate virgin may hope to save the ship itself, for it is one thing to look for what you have cast away and another to keep what you have never lost. So when you're baptized and now take the veil, don't sit anymore. Because you only have what? One chance. 
Luther knows this. And this is what he says. He rejects St. Jerome's famous metaphor that that penance is the plank for the shipwreck and asserts that for the faithful there is no shipwreck. Not for the morally righteous, but for the, the faithful. Baptism is the ship that does not sink or founder. It is the first plank which the believer may safely ride through all storms of life. The ship remains one, solid and invincible. It will never be broken up into separate planks. In it are carried all those who are brought to the harbor of salvation, for it is the truth of God giving us its promise in the sacraments. His promise. The truth of God giving us its promise in the sacraments. Penance does not succeed baptism because of post-baptismal sins. Penance serves baptism by driving the repentant sinner back to the promise of God. Now, the first thing to be considered about baptism is the divine promise, which says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. This promise must be set far above all the glitter of works, vows, religious orders, and whatever else man has introduced. Um, For on it, all our salvation depends. So, penance drives us back to this thing which is sovereign. And what do you need for this thing? What do you need to call on God and come back again and again? Faith. Faith and repentance. Baptism, my friends, however, is subject to faith. It is only effective when we exercise our faith in it. Absent faith, baptism will profit us nothing. So he writes, A man can believe even though he is not baptized. For baptism is nothing more than an outward sign that is to remind us of the divine promise. If we can have it, it is well. Let us receive it, for no one should despise it. If, however, we cannot receive it, or it is denied to us, we will not be condemned if only we believe the gospel. For where the gospel is, there is also baptism and all that a Christian needs. Condemnation follows no sin except the sin of unbelief. He's uh, operating off Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not, what? Believe shall be condemned. Baptism doesn't figure in the condemnation. It's the absence of belief. And faith embraces baptism. Therefore, the Lord says, he that disbelieveth shall be condemned. He says not, he that is not baptized. He is silent concerning baptism. For baptism is worth nothing without faith, but is like seals affixed to a letter in which nothing is written. He that has the signs that we call sacraments and has no faith has only seals upon a letter of blank paper. This to me explains why Stalin and Adolf Hitler are baptized. Lincoln isn't, but how about you? I like Lincoln a lot better. Uh, Through faith, um, we have the assurance of the gospel. We can rightly say, once we have been baptized, we are saved. But what does baptism mean? Faith. 
Without faith, we are in peril. Uh, Returning to the metaphor of baptism as a ship, Luther warns, of course, it often happens that many rashly leap overboard into the sea and perish. These are those who abandon faith in the promise and plunge into sin. Okay, I'm going to get ahead of myself, lest I'm not careful here. (laughs) Okay, the Lord's Supper. Um, I have quotations here from the large catechism. I got a lot of other quotations in this book, but I picked the ones from the large catechism because these are the ones that come up most often when people talk about the Lord's Supper and the matter of frequency. Uh, Kay, what did you say? Your mother took communion, grew up taking communion what? Twice a year. And uh, at the end of her life, or not the end of her life, but as she got older, uh, 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 communion was what? Oh, it was uh, three times a month. Three times a month? Way too much. Way too much, said she. <laughs> Way too much, said she. Okay. Well... She also had a lot of communion. (laughs) Okay. Now, here's what Luther says. True Christians who cherish and honor the sacrament will of their own accord urge and impel themselves to come. Um, Don't rush away from the sacrament. Unless, of course... A man has committed such a sin that he has forfeited the name of Christian and has to be expelled from the congregation. He should not exclude himself from the sacrament. Um, And it's the highest wisdom to realize that this sacrament does not depend upon our worthiness. But then he says this, We must make a distinction among men. Those who are shameless and unruly must be told to stay away for they are not fit to receive the forgiveness of sins, since they do not desire it and do not want to be good. Who does that include? Awful lot of people! Look at that. And remember uh, Augustine. Augustine says, uh, somewhere down deep in my teenage boyhood is this guy who loves to be bad, right? There are 5,000 rock songs on loving to be bad and hates the good. We know that in ourselves. So that exhortation pulls, right? Um, (laughs) If you have sinned, come to the table, but have a mind to renounce it. You will sin again. You can come back. There is blessed repetition but have a mind to renounce it. Now, this is why, as I said yesterday, uh, quoting um, a story by the name of Ritgers, who studied this, the prospect of lay people participating in the Lord's Supper without sufficient preparation frightened Luther... Um, and his uh, uh, colleagues. Um, and, uh, and so uh, Luther said, uh, this is 1524, 
um, private confession uh, is going to be mandated from now on. Uh, not only did he want to discipline people, but he had also had this understanding existentially of the meaning of confession for himself. I will allow no one to take private confession from me and would not give it in exchange for all the wealth of the world. No one knows what confession can give unless he has struggled much and frequently with the devil. What is this? Spiritual what? Warfare. I would have been strangled by the devil long ago if confession had not um, sustained me. And uh, this is also the place for the office of the keys. It's vitally important for the purpose of worship. The binding and loosing of sins keeps Christians in a living relationship with the Lord. The purpose of Christ's binding is to free the sinner from his sins. With his binding, Christ attempts nothing else but to free and rid the sinner's conscience of sins. It's for this reason that he binds and punishes the sinner so that he might let go of sin, repent of it, and avoid it. One may call such binding a saving. Show me the man so bold who in lonely place that awful stranger consciousness deliberately face. This is me. This is where I've been. <laughs> By golly, I know this myself this past year. And this is what I must do. There's a lot invested here. I'm thinking twice a year myself. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, now, uh, there's a context here. Um, Luther thought that the Christian was always a rara avis, a rare bird. There is no Christendom. The world and the masses are always and will be unchristian, even if they are all baptized and Christian in name. <laughs> um, the world loves darkness and hates uh, the light, and um, uh, uh, Christians are always in the minority. Now, <clears throat> you have to understand this in the context of its time. I didn't quite make this point the other day and uh, yesterday, and I should have. The Roman Catholic Church taught that the truth is uh, semper ubique omnibus, uh, always, everywhere, and by all. It is a definition of the faith that grew up in the early church over against the Gnostics, those who would privatize the faith and make it a secret uh, jargon that certain people would know wearing red pajamas and living on a ranch in Montana. No, um, the faith is open. Uh, a little child can know it. An adult knows it. And it goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right? A creed which you can share with Christians all across the globe. You learned as a child. It ain't no secret. Understand very well why the church uh, uh, said this. But, of course, this became a hammer for them to beat on these Lutheran upstarts because they were few, and the Catholic Church was what? Many. So, uh, uh, in part, in, in uh, response to this, 
um, uh, the Lutherans said, and Melanchthon was a key here, you know what? The truth is held in any given age by a minority. <laughs> the true church is oppressed by an infinite number. And uh, what is crucial is that in each age, there's at least one person who held to the truth. Now, you're talking about people who are in the thousands, living under the threat of people who are in the millions. And the only reason that Luther and uh, the early Lutherans were not extinguished was because for 10 years, the Emperor Charles V was at war with France and didn't have time to divide his troops, send them into Saxony, and hang all these people. And in that time, um, they grew and uh, became strong enough so that they could finally not be wiped out. Although it took a hundred years to find that out because they fought for a hundred years. These are tough times. These are very tough times. Um, so this is the context um, uh, in... Uh, um, uh, which uh, Luther uh, understands these things. Um, but he also directs it to worship. Um, the purpose of public worship is to make Christians. When Christians are made, um, they can move to private worship among themselves, a conventicle or a group, and their worship can be simple. Uh, in modern terms, we're talking about things like uh, house churches, uh, which in certain places in the world, China, for example, have been growing in the last 20 years by leaps and bounds. There's an official Christian church in China under the thumb of the government. Um, but there is an enormous Christian renewal in China, and it takes place under the radar. Eight, nine, ten Christians meeting together. Uh, Bonhoeffer, dealing with the territorial church that has uh, sold its soul um, to the government in the 30s. Uh, what do they do? They withdraw and form this confessing, confessing church, which as things get worse and worse so that any group apart from the government is considered to be seditious, they go underground. Or the Methodists. <laughs> John Wesley goes out and preaches and says... Uh, by golly, we all need AA. Come join the group, the Methodist class, in which you meet week to week, upbuild each other, and then go back to your church. Um, uh, this is small group ministry. <laughs> what else can I say here? But who's at the headwaters of this? Our guy. Here's what he uh, says. The gospel must be publicly preached to people to um, uh, move them to believe and become Christian. A truly evangelical order um, should not be held in, in a public place for all sorts of people, but those who want to be Christians and er in earnest and who profess the gospel with hand and mouth should sign their names and meet alone in a house somewhere to pray, to read, to baptize, to receive the sacrament, and to do other Christian works. I'm calling to mind Pliny's description of the early Christians, right? Meeting before dawn, pledging one another. 
According to this order, those who do not lead Christian lives could be known, reproved, corrected, cast out, or excommunicated according to the rule of Christ. Holy cow, the binding key is even there. Okay. Um, last thing here, and then I'll move on to, uh, to uh, how the Lutherans themselves administrated these ideas. Um, Luther writes this in relationship to uh, Christ's words in John 15:10, "If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love." It behooves everyone to search his heart and examine himself. That's been the theme this entire week. It's the imperative that St. Paul faces us with. Let no one bank on thoughts like these. I'm baptized and I'm called a Christian. I hear God's word and go to the sacrament. For here Christ himself separates the false Christians from those who are genuine, as if he were saying, if you are true believers in me and are in possession of my treasure, it will surely become evident that you are my disciples. If not, do not imagine that I will acknowledge and accept you as my disciples. You will never cheat and deceive any but yourselves to your eternal shame and harm. Christ in the gospel will surely not be treated, uh, cheated and defrauded. Christ found this admonition necessary, and it must be constantly repeated in Christendom because we see that there are always many Christians of this sort among us. Christ is determined not to have or to acknowledge any false Christians. In Matthew 7, he passes Ter a terrible sentence on them when he says that on the day of judgment he will address them with the words, I never knew you. Depart from me, your, you evildoers. Such false Christians would fare better if they were heathen and non-Christians. Then they would at least not do harm to Christianity with their offensive example and would not disgrace and blaspheme the holy name of Christ and of his word. Why does Luther say such things? Things which make many a church-type Christian from a later age cringe, including yours truly. Trusting that the Spirit alone calls and sanctifies, Luther felt free to speak plain language in the church, language of comfort, admonishment, and command, language that is contingent and conditional in that it demands a response on the part of the hearer Above all, fear of the judgment of God and faith in the divine promise of salvation. To be Christian is to know the forgiveness of sins, the glory of Christ's mercy. Christ alone makes the old Adam alive. But as Luther says in Bondage of the Will, that crucial text for all faithful Lutherans, God does it by killing. In the drama of human life before God, God breaks us down brings us to fear, which is the beginning of wisdom, which then leads to the promise of salvation. There's a drama here. Now, how this plays out in your life or mine uh, can be subtle, uh, not particularly dramatic over the long haul. Um, uh, not not exactly described by Luther's fierce language, for he was polemical. Um, the, the Catholics called him immodest. Immodest. He was always saying things right to the end. Um, 
But is it not true that often you come closer to God in times of crisis and suffering than when everything is going hunky-dory? Is that true or not? I wish, dear friends, it were not so. I wish with all my heart. I want another plan. Who's in charge here? But is it true? The fact is, it is true. And uh, there is this drama um, uh, to our lives in which uh, these points are uh, often the most important points. Now, there is abundant life. There is, uh, there is uh, the gift of children and family. There are wonderful things and blessings that we have, and uh, um, we should lift them up. But uh, this week, uh, we've been talking about something that began when I tried a conditional absolution in Luther Seminary Chapel and got dumped on. That's how we began here. <laughs> and what is the place of this line of thinking? It's very deep in the tradition and, um, uh, and very deep in Luther's own thinking. Now, um, his theology uh, gets placed into um, church regulations. <laughs> uh, by um, by uh, mid-century, uh, there are 50 Lutheran territories, cities, and the like. Uh, Germany is a crazy quilt pattern of uh, various governments and princes and free cities and the like. It doesn't become a nation until 1870. Okay? And um, there... Uh, uh, trying to uh, faithfully embody what their belief is. And they institute something called the Verhör, or interrogation. It comes with regulations. And um, uh, 50 Lutheran church ordinances between 1525 and 1591 decreed individual confession with the Verhör as a precondition to admission to the Lord's Supper. Uh, no um, uh, Lutheran polities failed to adopt it, and many forbade general absolution of the uh, congregation. What did these look like? Well, um, uh, let's take an example from 1570, and um, this is the... Uh, um, the uh, church order for Courland, present-day Latvia. Now, this church order calls for each Christian to be assiduously instructed in proper confession. The penitent is called to examine himself at least four times a year, to go before the priest who is in the stead of God. He or she is to engage in heartfelt confession it is expected that such confession will involve the disclosing of specific sins. If any are particularly grievous or involve important matters, the priest is expected to refer the individual to vice inspectors, that is, uh, associate inspectors, not inspectors of vice, okay? 
or superintendents for disposition. The confessional process of examination and preparation involves 12 steps. And these 12 steps are not simply, simply ticked off. It doesn't work that way. Um, but the type of thing that the minister is supposed to look for, uh, he has it in his understanding as he talks with the individual. And the, the purpose is to move people. So this is kind of a theolo theological template uh, placed on the, promise of or in the process of confession. The steps for confession are as follows. One, turning to God with one's heart, recognizing one's sins and confessing them. And if you turn with your heart, right, the heart is the seat of religion. What we worship is what we give our heart to. Then you're ready to hear that God is true and righteous and forgives sins. And this means knowing that the absolution, which is uh, the office of the church, the loosing of sins on earth and in heaven as proclaimed in Matthew 16 and John 20, is the goal and benefit of confession. You, you uh, confess with your heart. You know from the gospel that God forgives you. And you need to hear it specifically. It has to be said one to another. And it's said by your fellow Christians in the form of the authority of the church. Um, you need to know that the promise of the gospel is spoken particularly and privately to you. Uh, think of the sermon preached many times where uh, Jesus encounters uh, Peter, right? And uh, uh, Jesus says, uh, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. <laughs> Peter, do feed my sheep, okay? Uh, John, do you love me? Lloyd, do you love me? Jim, do you love me? Nate, do you love me? You got to hear it yourself. Got to be spoken to you, pro me. Um, these people really thought these things out, did they not? Can you imagine a committee in a room working on this, trying to be as faithful as they can? You can look at this stuff and make fun of it. Don't do it. These people are working hard to try and understand what confession is and uh, how it works. And they, re they represent the morphology of the Lutheran tradition because this is a, this is a corporate act, uh, not just some individual thinking this up. Um, that what is given to the individual is justification through faith, as St. Paul teaches in Romans. Take comfort in the fact that divine forgiveness consoles the conscience and reveals the penitent of anger, personal affliction, that should be anfectung, and secret sorrows. It's meant to relieve you. It's meant to make you feel better knowing that Jesus promises that whoever acknowledges him before men will acknowledge by him before his heavenly Father, rejoicing that God will send many blessings and mercy to the penitent, that the forgiven penitent is under obligation to the church and should know that 
which is sacred is not given to dogs nor pearls cast before swine. What you're going to get is this precious thing. In this regard, one should have fear in the knowledge that any baptized and believing Christian who evades God's offer of grace and forgiveness will be subject to God's wrath and fearful judgment on the last day. For that, my friends, is this version of the sin against the Holy Spirit. Knowing that God in Christ is the penitent's example, he should direct his way in divine righteousness. And finally, the forgiven sinner should seek harmony in the church and the increase of brotherly love. Not bad, huh? Any reaction or comments? We've got plenty of time here, and I'm coming to an end and getting really nervous. Yeah. Uh, a little bit ago, you were talking about how you got dumped on one bank or doing a liturgy that had something about conditional. Right. Okay, absolutely. Right. Okay, but. It is true, is it not, that the bread, service, book, and hymnal, and I declare unto you to repent and leave the entire thing. Right. Which is conditional. Yep, exactly right. But the green book does not in the first form, right? It's simply a declaring of the forgiveness of sins by virtue of what? People showing up and saying the words. And that's been operating since 1978. And the old rule is lex credendi, lex, lex arandi, lex credendi. As we pray or worship, so we believe. The habits of worship ch change how we do things over time. That's where it came in. That's my problem. Now, if you want to change things, go ahead and change them. Don't call them L Lutheran in some historical sense. You know, that, that's, that's the point of this. Now, the person is... Yes? Uh, I'm thinking that I don't know what con this confession is, really. I mean, you know, because I never went, uh, like in the movies, into the little <laughs> confessional, you know, and, and did something. Nor me. But in seminary, I went to a faculty member as a spiritual guide, and lo and behold, when you read that, tw that list of 12... I recognized something, what was going on in there, and at one point, twice, one time he said to me, wait a minute, wait a minute, do you believe that your sins are forgiven in Christ? And I said, I do. He said, you have no right to judge yourself. Another time I was complaining or doing something or other, and without saying a word, he got up, came around behind me, put his hands on my head, and spoke the absolution. Yeah. Something you, of that was going on. Yeah, and you needed that from oh, your fellow Christian. Oh, that was, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, this is to be done four times a year, okay? Uh, these instructions, I, w I should have brought a volume of Selig with me. Um, not Selig, what is his name? Zeling, yeah, it is Zeling. I should it's gigantic. And, and this one is double columns, and I'm thinking to myself, how do you do this four times a year? What, what are the mechanics of this, right? Uh, but what they're trying to do is cover all the bases, and then uh, the confession follows. The person comes in. Uh, there, there, are, there is a rubric that I'm going to get to. But there's no rubric for asking somebody about, you know, what do you wish to confess? 
it's made clear that you don't have to confess every picadillo. Um, but you need to confess, we have to have this conversation, and, and, and the minister needs to know that this is, this, this is what's going on. And uh, you're telling me, Keith, it works. You, you had such an experience. Now, you may not need that experience four times a year, but there is some time in your life when, by golly, you read it, really needed it, right? And in the blessed repetition of the church, it was there, and it worked that time, right? Now, the actual thing you need to know where the rubric comes in in this confession are in the following questions. The person is asked, what is the sacrament of the altar? Answer, it is the true body and blood of Christ. What are the words of institution? On the night he was portrayed. What moves one to receive the sacrament? The command of God to take and eat, so on and so forth. What makes the sacrament efficacious? Not merely the eating and drinking, but the firm faith that Christ died for my sins. What are the benefits of the sacrament? So on and so forth. Each person is asked this, why? Because the Reformation stood four square against the idea of fides implicita, or implicit faith. The Catholic Church said there's a hierarchy, a pecking order. The priest has explicit faith. He knows all the stuff. The lay people don't know the stuff. All they have to do is obey the church in its outward form, right? Why are we doing this? Don't ask. Just do it. No, said the Reformers. Uh, that is a theology for cattle, Luther said. Okay? Everybody has to, has to be explicitly involved. And this, of course, is this tremendous revolution of the Reformation that we all know um, uh, and talk about again and again and again. Uh, what is the first thing they did? They translated the Bible into the vernacular. They translated the Mass into the vernacular. So everybody, And then since nobody knew how to read, they set up a school system to teach people how to read. Not just boys, but the girls too. We're all called to explicit faith, including the theological understanding of these things. Now, if you will turn in your, um, uh, reclaim hymnal to page 29, uh, now, we saw Luther's uh, exhortation, and it was pretty tough, right? Here are the sins, and boy, we don't have a mind to renounce them. We don't uh, cast what is sacred unto dogs. Well, uh, let us say with Alain Delilly that in the early days, they could bear the burden of penance. We don't have the, the gahonies anymore, so things must be moderated. <laughs> so the exhortation in the Reclaim hymnal on page 29 is not of that type, but it is of this type. And this is also a long Lutheran tradition. That is to say, coming before the sacrament, you need to know what's going on in the sacrament. And that becomes the exhortation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, to receive this holy sacrament in a worthy manner, consider what we must now believe and do. We should believe that Jesus Christ himself is truly present. We should also trust that Jesus Christ forgives our sins. Finally, we should do as Christ commands when he says, take, eat, drink. When we repent, 
believe these words, and do as Christ commands, then we have rightly examined ourselves. You need to know what's going on here. And uh, this is uh, very much part of this Lutheran liturgical tradition, and you can see it uh, here in uh, this order from, um, from uh, Latvia. When you're all done with this, there is the absolution. And uh, since you've been through uh, all of this stuff, by golly, this absolution is unconditional. Because you earned it. <laughs> I'll just say that. You earned it. The almighty, truthful, merciful God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who through the will of his Son has forgiven thy, this is second person familiar in German, forgiven thy sins, wants further to have mercy on you, what has been begun to the praise of his holy name and your salvation. Amen. Depart in peace. No, but that, that's, usually, uh, uh, that's usually not in the script, but in what the minister says. The um, uh, minister gets up and says something to the effect, um, or should say something to the effect, that um, we open this table to uh, all who believe in Jesus Christ and his mercy and who are baptized to come forward. And um, that has to be said because in the 19th century in America, we had um, what's called the Galesburg Rule. Lutheran pulpits for Lutheran preachers, uh, Lutheran altar for Lutheran communicants. You had to be a member of the church. Missouri still operates that way, does it not? Okay. Well, uh, we have the practice of open table. I'm all for it. But that open table is for the baptized and those who believe in Christ. And what that means, then the exhortation gets... gets uh, but, th but that isn't a liturgical rubric. That's a good question, though. Yeah. Does um, confirmation have a role in this? It just sounds familiar to me that when we're confirmed, I just wonder if we confirm confirmed. Yeah, the, que the question is about confirmation. Is confirmation required? Uh, well, uh, that, of course, is a wonderful story in the ALC. Um, when uh, many of us were growing up, First Communion followed confirmation as its reward. And uh, I remember that is as if it were yesterday, and when you get to be an old codger like me, you uh, look at all of that uh, with nostalgia. Pastor Upsell says... Uh, now, uh, you're going to be in a white robe. This is the week after we've been confirmed. Uh, if I remember, the day after. The day after. So we have our white robes again and our boutonniere, you know, and, uh, and we're looking forward to the party with a family in which we get uh, envelopes with confirmation cards and money in them. <laughs> I had plans for spending it. I've always had plans for spending it. Those are my best plans. <laughs> so, and Pastor Upson says, now, uh, the, the wafer's very thin, and, and uh, it's it's, the, people don't want to watch you chewing it. So put it out the top or something like that, and just, it'll melt. But don't choke on it. And we go, okay, all right, we can't choke. 
And, and the wine will have a little burn, you know, when, when you drink it, and, and none of you have tasted this before. And as a matter of fact, none of us had. So, uh, so don't go, ooh, like that. You just got to be, okay. <laughs> so I remember my first communion as if it were yesterday. So in uh, the 1970 ALC convention, uh, they had uh, two big issues coming up, women's ordination and uh, communion being separated from confirmation and going by regulation or, or, or practice to age 10. Um, they spent 20 minutes on women's ordination and passed it. They spent a day and a half on confirmation. How do you like them apples? I, 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 that's pretty good. Pretty good. So, no, confirmation has been separated from, from uh, uh, First Communion. Now, the rule that uh, we had when I was pastor at Coma Park was uh, 10 years old, fifth grade, right? Yes, they changed it to that. That was the standard rule. However, it wasn't a set rule. If, if, uh, if uh, you wanted to have it with your children earlier... Um, you had to come to the pastor. Well, uh, I remember Connie Parisic was asked by her two boys, who at the time were 8 and 10 or 8 and 9, if she could have, if they could come up, why do they have to sit there? So Connie comes to me uh, with the boys and uh, is all nervous about this and what's, you know, what's going on here. So I talked to them and I said, look, I want you to go home and memorize the words of institution. Well, they came back, and a couple of days later, they'd done that. Then we went into the sanctuary, and we went to the uh, Lord's Supper window. Who's that? That's Jesus. Who's that? That's Judas. You know, what's going on here? All right? I said, you're ready. And the younger one said, uh, okay, I'm going to take it, if I remember correctly. And the older one said, I'm not ready yet. And he knew himself. Well... Out of the mouth of babes. So you, you have a standard rule uh, by which, you know, the number of people will operate conventionally, but there'll always be somebody. Now, um, I was up at the LBI in, um, in Camrose in Canada. Uh, this was about 10 years ago. And uh, on a Sunday, it was for, to give a, uh, do a lecture series at the, at the LBI up there. And Sunday, um, I, I, I was taken to a suburban church. Camrose is outside of Edmonton. And this church had, uh, I've told this story before, the altar in the round and whatnot. And they had infant communion there. And this was a matter of set rule. And suburban church, there were babies all over the place. Well, it comes time for communion, and the uh, elder who was an older man who was assisting the pastor, I could see he was nervous already, because the pastor was uh, handing out the bread, and he had the uh, wine, and he had this little strainer for the babies. Well, um, uh, the communion turned into... Uh, Dinner with the kids, right? I don't want the bread. I don't want to take it away. Oh, like that's all. Oh, 
and spit it right out. And then, you know, uh, you're waiting for the pastor to say, here comes the choo-choo, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, <laughs> the, 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 the layman with a, with a strainer, he's trying to hit the kid's lip. And the kid's going like this, you know. Well, after it was over, everybody was exhausted. I was sweating, you know. And uh, the, the altar was a mess. There was bread all over the place, red stains on the carpet. Everybody just sort of sat down exhausted. <sighs> Ain't for me. Yeah. You can be a Christian without baptism. Um, yeah, if you have faith in Christ. Amen. Why then cannot a Christian who is not baptized come to the Lord's Supper? Good question. I don't know. What are you trying to do, embarrass me? <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I think they can, you see, but you said they had to be baptized. Well, the... the, uh, the uh, it's the exception that proves the rule. Okay? okay? I got you. Uh, if, yes, you do. <laughs> you take your brother out. <laughs> um, there, there are, the assumption is that we live in a community or a society in which you can be baptized. Okay? And that if you're not baptized, it's because you refuse to be baptized. Um, but there are those occasions in which people can't be baptized. Uh, there, only faith is needed. Now, I suppose if you want to be doctrinaire about it, you could say that uh, come forward those who believe in Jesus Christ. But that breaks a rule that goes all the way back to the D.K. around 120 A.D. And I'd rather keep the rule for the normal case and understand the exception in a different way. That's, that's how I... And uh, uh, then, of course, we have the matter of uh, unbaptized babies who die. And uh, there, of course, history, uh, history is wonderful because it never works out the way you think. Augustine, living in the early church and in a culture in which there is, we, we don't expect um, individualism in the modern sense, said that unbaptized babies go to hell one by one. And the church couldn't stand it and uh, um, put up this condo called Lim Limbo where these kids could go. Well, you get to the modern period or on the cusp of the modern period and the one who's the clearest on this is the most uh, strictly um, Augustinian of all the reformers and that's John Calvin. Now you think of Calvin, you think of predestination and individualism, do you not? Well, it's Calvin, uh, and Luther is never this clear. Calvin says that no baby is born alone. But you are born into the faith of your parents who loved you and made you, and into the community in which they reside, which is the church. Um, a baby that dies before baptism is mourned by family and church. And those tears are prayers to the throne of God who accepts that child born in the community of faith and does not need the baptismal act to make it so. So you don't baptize uh, babies who have died. 
lest you turn baptism into a magic act and you trust the communal faith. Calvin's communal. Augustine, a thousand years before, is individualistic and nuts. What are you going to do? History doesn't work out always the way you think it's going to work out. Now, this matter of, uh, can I take five minutes? I, I keep saying that. Can I have five minutes? I, I want to be on stage for five minutes more, okay? Um, these, these unconditional absolutions that are given in private confession, in which people are called to do all sorts of things, right, uh, are, are, are in the, uh, these church orders um, uh, really well-crafted and beautiful things. Here's one from the church order of uh, Luneberg after private confession. Um, the Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ wills to be gracious and merciful to you, do, second person singular familiar, and will forgive you all your sins for his sake, that his dear son Jesus Christ has suffered and has died for this. And in the name of the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, at his command and in the power of his word, when he says, to whomever you remit, to him they are remitted. Okay? So it's Christ and God who does this and and I'm going to quote the scriptures here just so you know. Now I, the minister, will finally speak. Subject to Christ. I declare you free from all your sins. I declare you free, quit, and rid of all your sins. That they should be forgiven you always as richly and perfectly as Jesus Christ has effected the same through his suffering and dying. And has commanded the same to be preached through the gospel in all the world. And this trustworthy promise, which I now make to you in the name of the Lord Christ, that you will peacefully accept, joyfully fix your conscience on this, and firmly believe that your sins are certainly forgiven you. Something, huh? The forgiveness is a precious thing. Well, I don't have time to go on to the next phase of this, so you'll just have to take my word for it. Private confession is mandated in 50 Lutheran territories, and in some places, a public order is not allowed. But in other places, Nuremberg is a great example here, they have a public order for confession and forgiveness. In part, I said this the other day, because the church council feared the political power of the clergy when they can loose and bind sins in private to people. They had enough of that with Catholic priests. So instead, they took the office of the keys and put it in the book, which they turned out. That is, the uh, divine service. Well, since every Tom, Dick, and Harry shows up for the divine service, um, they go through this uh, confession of sins, um, uh, but not one-on-one. -on -one. And for this reason, the, um, the, uh, the absolution spoken must be clearly a warning so you know what's going on. And um, uh, Wenzelaus Link, who was at uh, St. Sebald's in uh, um, Nuremberg, uh, wrote up a confession 
uh, which became adopted by other Lutheran churches. So it became the common confession in Nuremberg. Here we go. And because who has sinned? We. Who is, who, who, who is we include? The people and who? The minister. So the minister is not, he's under the whole thing, right? It's in the book. It's not in the power of the, sacer, um, the sacerdotum. And because we have all sinned and need God's grace, humble your hearts before God the Lord, confess your sins and transgressions with heartfelt love and desire for his divine grace and help, with firm belief and trust in his gracious promise, and forgive from your hearts your neighbors, so that your heavenly Father will also forgive you your sins and transgressions. What's next? If. If you do this, I will then release you from all your sins on behalf of the Holy Christian Church, and by the commanded promise of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he said, he who sins you, uh, um, he who sins you forgive, to him they are forgiven, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is written in the book, and it is this conditional absolution. And wherever there is a public order, um, there, is a, uh, um, there is a conditional absolution. And that goes all the way through the Lutheran tradition. Why? Because you're coming, you're not being prepared ahead of time. You're coming to the service. You need to be warned. That is a clear rule. It's not disobeyed. Now, what we have done is to get rid of private confession, replace it with public confession, but then take the unconditional absolution of private confession and put it in the public service. That's the way, uh, that's the way it goes. Okay, I'm done. Thank you for joining us this week on the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Please join us again next Tuesday.